everyone. I'm Andrea Ferretti, and this is episode 160 of Yogaland. This is our season finale. It's the last episode of season two. I will be back on September 10th with a fresh batch of episodes for you. For this last episode of the season, I know you're going to enjoy it. It's Jules Mitchell is our guest, and Jason, join me for this interview. Jules is a Las Vegas-based yoga teacher, educator, and massage therapist. She has extensive experience in the study of biomechanics, and she applies it to yoga asana. She is the author of a new book called Yoga Biomechanics, Stretching Redefined, and Jason and I highly recommend it. It's extensive, so we couldn't talk through the whole book in one episode, but we got to talk to Jules about lots of things we were curious about, like the default narrative that we kind of hold on to in the yoga community, that greater range of motion is better, and how she works with that narrative within her teaching and within her community. We talked about hypermobility, passive stretching, the myth that strength and flexibility are opposites, and we define terms. So enjoy the episode with Jules. Thanks, as always, for listening. I appreciate you and your support so much. And if you enjoy the podcast, please leave a five-star iTunes rating and review. It helps a lot. There's a lot of podcasts out there these days, and it's hard for people to find them, and, and the ratings and reviews really do help. So enjoy the interview with Jules. Okay, Jules, it's nice having you on the podcast. Hi, thanks for having me. So <laughs> We're already having fun and exactly, we just started. <laughs> exactly. So I want to tell you first that this was really the first yoga book that I read in a long time. I want the audience to know I have read lots of yoga books in my life. <laughs> Don't get me wrong. And this was kind of the first thing that, that came to our house where I thought like, oh, I, I actually need as a teacher to look at this. He was really excited. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, thank you. One of the things I had also done... And I had first heard your name prior to reading this book was look at your content online, look at your blog content, which I'm going to get to later because I really like the interview or the back and forth conversations you have with, I believe his name is Charlie Reed. Yep. It's, it's really interesting. It's really applicable. And in my life, I kind of orbit mostly in the yoga room, but also in the gym and also in other worlds. So it's nice to have that interdisciplinary conversation that I read online. So I have some questions about that later, but I kind of wanted to dig in right away. And one of the things that you do early in your book, which I think is so valuable, is you define your terms. And I think that you do this because of the complexity of the content with which you're working, right? And you're also writing it as a scientist, so you have to be accurate. I'm wondering if you can talk us through some of the things. So what I mean by that is it seems like early on you step back from words like stretch and stress and you try to bring greater clarity and you talk about load and you talk about compressive load or tensile load. So the question that I have is as a teacher, as a scientist, why did you choose so early to define terms? And do you think that this is one of the challenges that we have in the yoga world communicating with other people in the yoga world and also people outside of the yoga world is that we're just often not sharing our fundamental assumptions and language? Absolutely. And how I discovered this is when I was writing this book, it was 
it's for the yoga world, but it was really for me. It was so I could get clear on where I stood on all of this and what all of these words mean, you know, meant to me. And I had the fortunate circumstances that I could go out and travel and teach the content while I was in the process of writing. So I really was like, you know, hands on with my audience. And what I noticed was questions that they would ask me were exactly what you just laid out. They were so not clear. The questions were clear. They would ask me a question and I would have to say, well, what do you mean by stability? What exactly are you saying? Because my definition of it might not match your definition of it. So I can't answer it until I know clearly and exactly what you're asking, you know, or even just the word stretch thrown around in a casual context, just based on personal experience. And it might not mean the same thing. And so that's kind of what happened when I was out teaching was I ended up, I'd start every workshop saying, putting the word biomechanics on the board. And I would say, okay, let's define biomechanics. You guys signed up for a yoga biomechanics workshop. Some of you should have some idea what this is about, right? And then they would have read my blog or they would have like listened to a podcast. And so they would know my sound bites and they would be like, oh, well, it's load. And I'm like, well, what is that? (laughs) You know, or like they would say, oh, well, it's force. Okay, well, what is that? And as I would ask them more and more questions and their confidence would just completely diminish because they realized they were just repeating words that they didn't understand fully. And so that's why I chose very early on to lay that foundation, because I think that's the only way that we can actually communicate. And some of the ideas in in the book are are not new and some of the ideas are kind of new. There's some new research on tendons that doesn't really fit with the sort of, you know, collective language that we have as a society. And so I really had to lay down right in the beginning, this is what I mean when I say these words, so that you can follow along when I start questioning them. I find for me, one of the workshops I have to do this most overtly in is when I'm teaching a workshop on core, right? Because saying the word core is not like saying the distal head of the fifth metatarsal, right? Not at all. It is a little bit subjective. It's open to interpretation. And so many people have the image that core is constrained to anterior abdominals, right? And so I see this, especially as a traveling teacher, that it's so important that we get everyone on the same page. That doesn't mean everyone has to agree, It mean, right? It means everyone has to say, this is the discussion we're having, and we can come down on different sides with our analysis. But at very least, we have to constrain the conversation to language that we can all agree upon. And that in and of itself is a demanding enough thing. And then with something like the core, I just have to bring this up because it goes along with it, but there's cultural beliefs as well. So now that we've determined what we mean anatomically, can you for a moment be with your beliefs and recognize that those are beliefs are, those beliefs have not been outlined in our definition. And so as long as it's okay, you can believe what you want, but recognize that they are beliefs and that they can change when provided with the right evidence, or maybe not. Right. So so can we just take a moment for the listeners like me, who are not <laughs> as familiar with these terms? And I would love to know how you define compressive load and tensile load in the context of yoga. Like, if you could provide some yoga examples of those definite, you know, of those terms. I just kind of clean it up to go straight to the mechanical terms, right? So compression is when forces are going in the same, you know, going toward each other. For example, running, jumping, standing, 
you know, because we have gravity, right? And so we have ground reaction forces as a result of gravity. And then tension is when something is being pulled apart. So, you know, being, being stretched. The reality of it is, is that we're under compressive and tensive tensile forces all the time. Like you cannot walk without being exposed to compressive and tensile forces. And so then that, that really starts to ask, you start to ask more questions when you just look at that. Because then you're like, well, what is it about a seated stretch at the end of yoga class that makes it different than like, again, this inter- interdisciplinary, than, than the tension that's put on the body in a deadlift? How are those different and how are those the same? And so suddenly this idea of stretch becomes much more focused on like the parameters around it. What are we doing? Why are we doing it? Is there muscle contraction? Is there not? How much load? How fast? In what direction? So a lot of our assumptions now start to open up and we say, oh, I have other things I might need to consider before making these blanket statements about things. So I want to get into range of motion and some conversations around it, right? You know, the yoga world often defaults to two different narratives, right? Yes. <laughs> well, there's a couple of them we, we, we tend to default to, right? And one of the default narratives that we tend to settle into is that increasing range of motion is always a healthy and desirable thing. Mm-hmm. That's number one. And number two, that the best way to do this is through stretching things, right? Right. It is to largely invoke greater range of motion through what we think of stretching muscles or applying greater tensile load. But we know that increasing range of motion, like ad infinitum, is not always a desirable thing, that there are end ranges to which we in a human system want to go and honor. And then secondarily, we know that just simply doing passive stretching is one of many different techniques towards those ends, but not the singular or necessarily the best technique. So I'm coming to you now kind of as a teacher with what are your thoughts? So even, so maybe even less as a scientist, but as a, as a teacher, like how as a teacher do you communicate these two things that, yes, we often want to increase range of motion, but not necessarily all the time. And number two, yeah, we often include some sort of passive stretch, but it's not the only way we do it. So as a teacher, how do you work with these narratives and how do you balance them for your community? Well, one of the things that I would add to that first narrative is that, you know, we think that the greater range of motion is desirable, but there's more to it. Like, is it necessary? So I introduced the idea of what are the activities that you want to do in your daily life and what do they require? And so for a yoga teacher who wants to put their their leg behind their head, if that's really what they want to do, so be it. Like that's not, it's not my place to say that's not good. That's not dangerous. You know, that's, it's just all I want to do is say, okay, if this is something that means something to you, then as long as you're informed about, you know, the whole conversation around it, then I allow you to do that. It's not my, it's not my place. Right. And, but so that I think is when it comes to range of motion, I think that's really the first and foremost conversation that we need to have. I think people just assume range of motion is desirable or necessary or important without actually putting it into context for their individual lives. And that alone will usually start to change the narrative for somebody because they think, oh, well, I want to play with my kids. I want to go go to yoga classes a few times a week and leave feeling good and less stressed. 
and I want to go for my weekly or weekend runs. And, you know, in the winter, I want to go skiing with my family. You know, if, that, if those are your, your goals, then sometimes this increased range of motion is just not even, won't, you know, I know plenty of people in their 80s and 90s who have very limited range of motion, who have lived happy, healthy, successful lives. <laughs> you know, <laughs> it hasn't really impacted their life much. Mm-hmm. And so that's really the first narrative that I kind of start to introduce. And then on the other side, the the passive stretching side, I went into this work a little bit of a critic of passive stretching. I didn't quite understand it. And I I believed in, you know, in this model of the human body as having a limited amount of stretches. And, you know, I just I was like, oh, this isn't good. There's better things to do. And so I was I started as a critic. And by the time I finished my book, I retract that. And you, you, Jason, as someone who's like read my early blogs and then read the, my book, the narrative is quite different. It you is. know, my blogs are from yeah. 2015 and 2014, and the book was just recently published because I matured because I had to really sit with the research. And and so passive stretching isn't as bad as we have made it out to be because that's just as you said, that's what we do. We think one thing, and then you know, it's either that or the ex- exact opposite. The pendulum always swings too far. And so that's where maybe we can bring up Charlie now, my friend Charlie Reed. Uh, He and I had some really nice dialogues because it's not necessarily that passive stretching is bad. It's only one thing and it takes time. And for people in our busy lives who want to have multiple fitness goals, they want to get stronger, they want to feel better, they want to increase their, their, their cardiovascular endurance, and they want to get more flexible. Passive stretching only covers one of those versus things like deadlifts, you know, cover a lot of those. And so it's not that passive stretching is bad. It's just it, it really is just it does one thing. And if you're busy and you have other goals, maybe consider adding something to else to your routine. But at the same time, if you're go, 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 and you need the environment of a class that is on the floor stretch class, and that is that helps you with your experience of life, then that's also good. So it's really individual, I guess. You have a section in the book about hypermobility. And I don't think my hypermobility is like up to the pathological range, (laughs) but I do see it in our daughter. Like she's super, super, super hypermobile. And it affects her in a lot of ways that some of that you mentioned in the book, like the anxiety and the gastrointestinal stuff. I guess I'm wondering, A, what you think about passive stretching for someone who is perhaps hypermobile and then B, if you can offer any clues as to how, because I do think that a lot of hypermobile people, including myself are attracted to yoga because it's hard to be good at things when you're hypermobile. Like you're not as coordinated and you're not as fast and you're not as strong. (laughs) I've never thought about it like that. Oh my gosh. Like that was absolutely has a selection bias for people with hypermobility. Absolutely. So like, how can we determine actual hypermobility. Yeah, well, this this is a great topic. And actually, I deliberately didn't dive too deep in my book into it because the book is not a book on hypermobility. And it actually actually deserves that amount of attention. So I deliberately brought it up and brought it to people's attention and then kind of left it at that because it it would have been derailed on my narrative. Hypermobility is a collagen the language in the medical community is disorder. 
I don't like to use that word because I think language, you know, is important as we started this this podcast. So it's a variation of the molecular structure of collagen. So that's where that's why I get into tissue mechanics because this makes sense to if you understand how how tissues are structured. So at the molecular level, we let's just say for layman's terms, the collagen molecules are disrupted, which means they don't have the structural integrity that let's just say I'm using air quotes, normal collagen has. I just consider hypermobility sort of on the continuum of the range of human variability. I don't like to, as a yoga teacher, tell people that they have a disorder. It's not my job to, right? Yeah, I appreciate that. And so there's that. So that's what what hypermobility is. Hypermobility is not something that is just you're more flexible. Many times we see it as people are more flexible, as you're talking about right now. And so, yes, yoga self-selects people with hypermobility because they're naturally good at yoga, whatever that means. But we all we can all agree that, you know, that is the experience that you're good at it. I don't necessarily think that passive stretching is is going to be detrimental to somebody with hypermobility, it just likely isn't going to feel good. The muscles are working kind of in overtime to sort of keep some sort of tension in the body, right? So, I mean, we need some sort of tension. Our body is always under tension. The connective tissues are under tension. And so it could end up causing some sort of discomfort, increased anxiety, all of the other things. And so that's where, as a teacher, it becomes challenging because we can't really diagnose someone and say, you have hypermobility, you shouldn't do that. Then this is where like, it becomes a challenge. Is how can you, as a teacher, start to use language that allows the individual to self-analyze and self-reflect and decide for them what is the appropriate range of motion for them in that given day because it changes day to day as as you are aware and instead of being sort of the official diagnostic person at the front of the room and saying this this pose is good for this person this pose is good for this person but really sort of giving the students some self reliance and, and that's the challenge i don't have an answer but this is what i i encourage teachers to do and what i'm constantly in the inquiry of doing If there was a handbook for it, you know, it'd be a bestseller. But unfortunately, we're more complex than that. So, Jason, it has been so nice having you home for the summer, but you are headed on the road again soon. So tell me where you're going. Well, first things first, you're coming with me to London this summer. I know. I'm so excited. You're only going to be there for one day of the training. Yes. But you'll get to meet people. Yes, I will come in and wave in the back corner. Yeah, and that training is long sold out, but I have a bunch of other stuff coming up, as you say, this fall. And the first thing that comes up this fall is Bethlehem, Pennsylvania, which is only 90 minutes west of Manhattan, Mm -hmm. super close to Philly. So everyone on the East Coast, like, it's such a great trip. It's super, super, super convenient, and it's a lovely little town that you (laughs) went to high school. I went to prep school there. Yes, it's a beautiful, sweet place. Some other stuff coming up, Chicago. And I'm going to be in Chicago for five days. So five days in October. So we're going to do a teacher training, continuing ed thing, and then some weekend workshops. Chicago, one of my favorite cities. Yeah. And I would go with you, except that after that is the Hawaii retreat, right? Are there any spots left on that? No. Oh, okay. Sorry. (laughs) Sorry, peeps. No. Uh, But also DC. DC in November. Same combination as in Chicago. 
So some sequencing content for teachers and then also weekend workshops. I'm going back home to the great state of Ohio, Columbus, for a weekend workshop in November, which I'm super excited about. And then also Portland in November. And I think that is almost sold out. So there's spaces, I think, for everything. We're such good but marketers. Go to go. jasonyoga.com slash schedule to find out the specific dates and the specific cities. And then you can click through to register. Yep. Okay. Thank you. I have two follow-ups about this, right? Because as you're talking about hypermobility and you're describing that at least the primary causal variable is collagen. Okay, two things come up for me, which is, can the same be said for hypomobility, right? So- Great question. <laughs> right, so you have, right, you have uh-huh. the body type that is the opposite of that, which is, I won't say that I am that body type, but I, I will tell you that, you know, as someone that has worked- in an intelligent and consistent way in my body through the yoga practice and other means for over two decades, my hamstrings have not become more pliable Mm -hmm. in my front bends in probably 10 years. And there are certain parts of my body that I would say in most poses, the threshold that I come up against is a tensile threshold, not a compressive threshold, right? And yet I keep coming up against those same thresholds and I have for a long period of time. And it has always felt to me like this system has just gotten to its end range of compliance, right? And so, and what it has felt to me for a long period of time is it's not stuff running into stuff. And it doesn't feel like it is nervous system activation. I mean, again, it's, it's difficult to, to kind of delineate these things. But yeah, just on that topic of hypomobility, uh, like hypermobility, whether or not collagen is a, is a primary variable. Okay, there's so much in that question I had to take notes <laughs> so that I could remember to hit all the points. So let's just start with what you started with, which is hyper and hypomobility. So it's interesting that these two words are used together because, of course, they share the same words, but they're actually quite different. So hypomobility is really just the lack of flexibility. Hypermobility really is more about a collagen disorder at the molecular level. Different. Okay. You can have hypermobility and actually not appear more flexible. Something that you would need to be diagnosed by your physician. And that's why it's a kind of a challenge for yoga teachers because somebody can be quite flexible, like myself. I'm somebody that came to yoga in college because I was extremely flexible and very good at it, but I don't have hypermobility at all. So it's hard to just look at somebody and make that diagnosis. Hypomobility isn't something that requires a diagnosis. It's just as defined as limited range of motion. So, but because the words share the same root words, of course, we think of them as opposites and, and they're not. So let's talk about kind of what, what you were talking about, though. You're talking about, like in your own body, the sense of really stiff connective tissue, yeah. right? So the connective tissue is, it has, it behaves in a stiffer way. And stiff is, is not something that necessarily needs to be rubbed out or stretched out. Stiff is a mechanical term, which I define in the book. I won't do it here. But it's basically just the ratio 
of the force being applied and the amount that it yields, amount that it actually stretches in, in length. So that's all that stiff is. You know, let's look at let's look at like a theraband. We can all understand that one theraband has more stiffness than another theraband. That's all that is. But they both stretch. They both actually have this range of motion available to them. You know, they both yield. So what you're talking about, that sense of feeling of stiff connective tissue, that's just kind of on the other side of the spectrum of human variability, right? And so you can kind of look at it as this sort of continuum of people that have less stiff connective tissues and people that have more stiff connective tissues. And your genetics sort of dictate that. It's going to be really hard to stretch that stuff out because that, can we even do that is the question. So Robert Schleip, who's a researcher out of Germany, he has a really good analogy. I'm going to use it here because I think everyone will resonate with it. But he calls it the temple dancers and the Viking. And then there's everyone in between, right? And so you're- I'm like a temple dancing Viking. <laughs> I look, no, I look like, dreams. no, I look like a temple dancer, but I move like a Viking. It's the like worst of both. <laughs> Sorry, go ahead. I don't even have to go any further. You, you understand yeah, 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 totally. it, right? And so- the, the activities that you do will affect, you know, the, your tissues to some degree, but not completely. You know, part of it is just in your genetics and there's not much you can do. And that's kind of what you're talking about. Now, I want to add one more thing is that you mentioned tension and compression. And I use tension and compression a little bit differently than the way that you used it, which is not incorrect. I just want to define these terms because you used compression as the, sort of the bony compression, the that explains morphology, right? So that your end range of motion is limited by the shape of your bones and that the bones compress at the end range. So I use compression a little bit differently because I just use it in terms of, if you stand with a barbell over your head, there are compressive forces going through you. You know, So I don't look at compression in terms of range of motion, not that it's not a completely valid way of discussing it, but earlier you'd asked me to define these terms and so I use them a little bit differently. So it's more about what happens when you compress a bone. The cells get stimulated. Uh, they, they start to regenerate and make more bone. That's kind of how I look at it. And I just wanted to make that clear. Right. And, you know, one of the things that has been so helpful for me over the years is now I see the incredible value of having a fair amount of stiffness within oh, yeah. my tissues. Right. And that was something that, you know, my ego struggled with for a long period of time. I had come from an athletics world. I had left that alone. I had stepped into the yoga world. And like everyone else, like I didn't want to be competitive, but, you know, I wanted to be able to fit in. Mm -hmm. And I had for a long period of time this narrative of, oh, I'm a tighter, stronger person. Mm -hmm. And that was a very limited narrative. And the reality is that's only partially correct. But I am so appreciative of my body type and I'm so appreciative that my body stops when my body stops. And one of the things that the stiffness provides me is greater recoil, greater strength, greater efficiency of motion, right? Greater, Mm -hmm. exactly. So I've finally gotten to the place in my life where I don't actually desire more elasticity than I have. I have all the elasticity that that I could really ever want. I could get my shoes on. I can look decent in a front bend. I can do X, Y, and Z. And so it's through time and education where I'm not saying now I accept the way my body is. I'm saying I actually really appreciate that I have that 
stiffer tone within my structure, within my system that I, in the past, with less of an education, thought was a detriment. Absolutely. <laughs> so there's another topic that's related, right? And I've been thinking about this for, a, for kind of a long time as a yoga teacher, which is, what is my responsibility as a yoga teacher to teach a comprehensive system of movement? Now, we know, like, this is a very physical conversation, and you wrote a very physical book. But obviously, we both know, everyone in this room knows, yoga is much more than the physicality. But we're talking about the physicality on this episode, right? So with regards to physicality, I'm thinking, what is my responsibility as a yoga teacher to teach a comprehensive style of movement as opposed to more of a niche style of movement? So when I break that down a little bit more, I think about the phases of strength, right? What is my responsibility to help build concentric strength, isometric strength, eccentric strength? Then I also think to myself, what is my responsibility to help people build more passive range of motion and active range of motion? And the more I sit with it, the more I feel like it's kind of my responsibility teaching the style that I teach to try to help students co-develop all of those factors rather than focusing on one or another one of those factors. So I kind of want to put that to you, just your feeling as a yoga teacher. Do you feel like in the yoga room, as a teacher, you're trying to help facilitate all of those different physical dimensions of being? Or do you feel like, look, yoga is really good at working with these couple of things, and then if someone wants to develop a different dimension of strength, like more concentric strength, let's just send them to the gym. This is such a good question because you know this is one of those questions that doesn't have an answer. So yes. I'm just going to tell you how I feel. That's, that's what I'm uh, looking for. Yeah, I love it. Um, this is the benefit I have of, of, of having professional conversations like this with people in my life who are not in this profession. And so I've learned a lot from them. I learned a lot from teaching teachers, but that's an echo chamber. <laughs> yeah. And and we can have conversations like we're having right now and throw around all these terms and we all know what they mean. So when I'm talking about group classes that the public attends, which is, I think, what you're asking. Yeah. Um, when I'm talking about people don't know any of this. They know so little about it. They don't even know what you're talking about if you start to talk about it. So the, the approach for me personally that I have with the general public is I do like to explore all of the things that you just mentioned, all of the movement profiles. Sometimes I like to add a few other things that aren't quite yoga, like from Pilates or you know other things, right? So I don't usually, in my way of teaching, throw it all at the students in the same class. Because I think it's too much for them. They're confused. They're like, wait, am I contracting or letting go? I don't know. They're, they're thinking about get, picking up their kids from school. They're, they're not even listening to me anyway. And so I teach very focused classes. And I will explore all of those things. But I'll usually limit it to just kind of one small theme and let them explore it in a variety of different poses and shapes and, and movements. And then maybe next week they come and maybe the sequence is actually not that different. We're just exploring it with a different context. And so they have time to, to process it and, and feel it in their bodies. You know, when I was dating someone for a while and I'd bring him to yoga classes with me and he's like, what's going on? Like, they're, we're, they're still talking about where to put your feet. 
And, you know, and he's so confused. He doesn't even, he's like, what is this pose? And so it's, I've really tried to make it more simple yeah. and take all of these complex ideas, but really simplify it and just give people one thing to focus on. That's how I do it. Related to that, I guess this is a really loaded question. Mm-hmm. I'm just wondering, I mean, I think the three of us probably, when we started doing yoga, the way that it was taught to us and packaged to us is that it is was this complete system, all you could ever need to be balanced and healthy, in quotes, right? I guess I'm wondering from your perspective, do you think that's a truism? I, obviously, it depends on the person, but I'm just wondering if if that's something that you still feel like we could say, or if from your experience and your research, we do need other disciplines to balance our yoga practice. This is where the principle of adaptability comes into play, right? We adapt to the things that we do most, most often. And that by adapt, I mean, increase our capacity for. So So here's an example. If I were to go play tennis with Serena Williams for an hour, her racket arm would not actually adapt to that one hour session the way mine would, because for me, it's novel and new. So my racket arm, the cells would be, you know, like screaming, hey, we've got we've got some work to do here. What is this? What is this activity that I'm not used to? And so really the benefit of an activity or an exercise, if we want to call the physicality of yoga that, but the benefit of a physical activity diminishes or decreases the, the more you do it, the better you get at it. So that's really the basic principle to understand. So yes, yoga was sold to me as a all-encompassing, lifelong practice. I never needed to do anything else. And after about 15 years of only yoga, I and I had been an athlete in high school and stuff, I was like, you know, my body is screaming to go for a run. Mm-hmm. I need to go running. And I would go running and my yoga friends would be like, oh God, what are you doing? You know? And I, but I would love my practice so much better. It, it, like it brought me back to my practice. And then I started getting weird little injuries, which I now know are basic tendinopathies. And, and, it, and I, you know, that's what actually brought me to this research. And I was like, oh, you know, like maybe this shoulder thing isn't like, it's not actually not the yoga. It's just that, the, the shoulder is just, it hasn't get, I haven't challenged the shoulder in 15 years. You know, the first three, four years of my yoga practice was great. But maybe if I started doing some upper body conditioning, maybe I could still do all the yoga, you know. And so I think that's really the important factor to understand. There are some people that will do yoga their entire lives and live happy, healthy lives and not do anything else. And it, it's impossible to predict that. What are their genetics? What else is going on in their life? What, what are their what are their goals? What do they want to do? How are they sleeping? What is the stress in their job? And so it's really contextual, but allowing people to understand that we adapt to what we do. And if your yoga practice is kind of not serving you, maybe you've just adapted to it and try something else. Try something new and that we don't have to give up on your yoga. Because I think that's what happens is we've thrown the baby out with the bathwater, right? Like, oh, 
you can only do yoga for so long before it hurts you. Therefore, it sucks. And that's not the case. Another example, I had a, a just without even tissue stuff, I had a, I was in a course and I was working in a group with someone. It was a pain science course. They found out I was a yoga teacher. And, and so this person said to me, oh, yoga had been my magic pill for about five years. I have back pain. And every time I'd go to yoga, it would make me feel better. And after about five years, it stopped working. And I was like, it's not the yoga. It's just you've adapted to that. Try something else. <laughs> you know. And then if you still like the yoga, you can come back to it. And it's such a simple answer. It's almost unsatisfying. But for me, it's very satisfying because it's like I just have to look at what's at the situation and make a decision and, and assess the outcome and then make another decision based on that. Yeah, no, I like that. It's like you're you're looking at what's right in front of you at the time and then making your decisions based on that. Yeah, and, and being okay with if something else makes the back pain worse, then that's okay. That Then we're not going to do that. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. <laughs> and I think that's also part of it. It's like we want to feel good, perfect, strong, healthy all the time, every day. Mm -hmm. And that's not a reality. Like we have good days and bad days and it's okay to to embrace that. It's okay to recognize that some days your shoulder hurts in yoga and other days it doesn't. And maybe the day that the shoulder hurts is the day that you lay off a little bit. And the day that your shoulder feels good is a day that we can actually challenge that shoulder and work it a little harder so it can adapt and, and be resilient. And again, letting the students discover that for themselves, giving them the space to assess how they feel that day and how they feel the next day and the day after and think about the things, the activities that they did Maybe they, you know, maybe they carried their groceries too far or something. You know, other, there are other things. It wasn't just what they did in the yoga room. I kind of want to answer that question too. Okay. Right. Which is kind of quick and simple, right? Which is, I think that one of the reasons that people are so desirous for yoga to be the be all end all to meet and exceed all physical, mental, and emotional requirements is we have this modern conundrum where we have so many damn choices and yeah. we're overwhelmed with choices and we have this incredible decision fatigue, yeah. right? So if you were to say to me like, hey, I have this one thing and you're gonna be more content, you're gonna be more strong, you're gonna be more flexible, you're gonna have better cardiovascular, mm -hmm. right? Like I want to believe that there is that one single thing that is going to enhance all of those needs and profiles, and I don't have to keep doing countless different modalities, right? So I think that's one of the reasons that people are kind of inherently, maybe vulnerable is the wrong word, but I think it's a cultural scenario where we want to think that there's one thing that helps all of these dimensions. I think that the two other things I want to say about it, quick and simple, is if I could only do one physical modality to feel embodied, to feel sane, rational, healthy, and content, it would be yoga. But I don't have to just do one more modality, right? I live in a modern world, which allows me to say, you know what? These are the things that I'm interested in. These are the pursuits that I'm looking to develop. So I can do yoga to fit these needs. And then I can also use a different modality in order to facilitate other aspects that I want to develop. I think I only have like one more broad topic question for you. And it comes from the blog. It comes from your writing with Charlie Reed. And I don't know, like you said, because this is a, an older conversation that you had with him. 
I don't know if you still have this perspective. And to be frank, I don't actually remember whether or not it was you or Charlie that wrote this. But when I read this, this has been something that I have really been thinking a lot about for a couple of months when I saw this, which was just the sentiment that strength converts to range of motion more than range of motion converts to strength. And so what I'm interested in is you just further discussing that phrase or that concept. When you get stronger, you develop range of motion. Right. That's It's just that simple. When you develop range of motion by other means, maybe let's just say passive stretching, it doesn't make you stronger, right? So let's talk about that because the re- this is a cultural, like, problem. Like we, nobody wants to put their head around that because it, it doesn't fit with our normal narrative. And part of that is because when we think of strength, we think of like bodybuilders. Right. And we often can convolute it to tightness. Mm-hmm. Bodybuilders don't train for strength. Bodybuilders train for something called hypertrophy, which is bulk and mass, right? Hypertrophy is the building of muscle. Um, when you're bulky and have all of this extra mass, like like who's try, who does yoga in their ski suit, right? It doesn't it doesn't have the same effect. You might lose some limited range of motion. Also, if you start really looking at how hypertrophy works and the length tension curve and all kinds of stuff that's not necessary to get into, but a lot of times you'll just train in these mid ranges because that's where your muscle has the most strength, you know. So that it kind of gave us this idea that bodybuilders don't have a lot of range of motion. Therefore, strong people don't have range of motion. But when we start looking, like just look at the Olympics, you know, so the, next to gymnasts who are quite strong, <laughs> um, you know, I mean, watch, watch men's gymnastics, watch the rings. I can't do any of that. They're strong. <laughs> and, we, and next to gymnasts, even just the power lifters, you know, the Olympic lifters, they have actually great ranges of motion second to gymnasts, and they are very, very strong. And so it's it, somehow we got this idea that, that there's this, this binary relationship, you know, strength and flexibility are opposites. And they're just not. I think it really was the 1980s, you know, bodybuilding Arnold Schwarzenegger era that ha- led us to start thinking along those terms. And we need to kind of break that down because it's just not the way it is. When I see like an Olympic lifter do a clean and snatch and how much flexion is produced in their shoulder joints, I am amazed. I'm like, this person has 40,000 pounds overhead (laughs) and I can't even reach my arm overhead with no weight and produce that amount of flexion. And even just the deadlift. Yes. You know, I mean, just, just doing a deadlift, which is a strength exercise requires hamstring flexibility. You can stretch your hamstrings or you can deadlift. And it's, it's, that's where it's actually the same thing yeah. <laughs> because it's under tension. And so, so the difference is that when, you, when you're you know, loaded activity, there's a lot more external load. So there's a lot more work. There's going to be a lot more you know, cortical input. So it's, just, it's, more, it's a more comprehensive exercise than, than a passive stretch. Again, nothing wrong with passive stretching. Right, it it's has just, a if place. It's not working, if it's not working for a specific outcome, try loading it and see what happens. Hmm. Interesting. Um, so I have one more question and you have this little sidebar in your book where you ask, well, basically you say, consider what you originally believed about yoga and musculoskeletal 
injury. What influenced those beliefs and where do you stand now on the prevalence of tissue abnormalities? I would like to turn that question toward you and have you answer those those questions. I hope that if the listeners hear my answer, that they've actually read the book and asked themselves those questions because I don't want my answer. So if you're so I just don't want my answer to you know, inform their answer because it was intended to be a personal inquiry, but I'll absolutely share mine. I believed when I started, of course, yoga, that yoga was great for everything. And then I started hurting. And so then I believed that it was the yoga's fault and that we were doing all sorts of stupid things in yoga and that stretching was unnecessary and, and it was, you know, getting in everybody's way and we were causing all sorts of problems. And the more we stretched, the more our tissues would just become lax. And then I changed my mind. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I always joke, like, if stretching, just kind of the way we do in yoga, I'm not talking about the stretching where somebody's standing on you. I'm not talking about, I'm not talking about anything. I'm just talking about just normal activities of stretching. If stretching made these tissues sort of loose, uh, then I would, then my hamstrings would be dragging on the floor behind me, right? Mm-hmm. Because mm-hmm. I've stretched them so much. But yet somehow every time I come out of the stretch, those hamstrings still recoil back into their you know, position that they belong in so that I can function the rest of the day. And so for me, it was really like I kind of like was disillusioned with yoga for a little while until I started working on this. And then I fell in love with yoga again. And I just recognized it for what it is. And I think it can do great things. And I think especially for people who are new to yoga uh, people who are have done lots of other activities or perhaps no activities, sedentary individuals, the, the novel exposure of loads on the body in these yoga shapes is brilliant. It's just, again, looking at basic principles of adaptation, at some point, maybe, maybe they need to vary up a little bit. Maybe we need to ap- approach the poses I, more of an isometric focus or more of a concentric focus. There's different ideas to to add to yoga. But I don't think that what I blamed yoga for, it deserved. If mm-hmm. that makes sense. <laughs> I think this is such an important point, right? Because it's kind of like a relationship. I think about yoga as this very long ongoing relationship that I have with all of the layers of my being, right? And relationships except for the one I'm currently in with my wife, <laughs> goes through difficulties, right? You go yeah. through troubled times, right? It goes through difficulty. But if you maintain consistency and you get perspective, then you are going to learn how to navigate those complexities and build a stronger process. Or you just quit and walk away. Mm-hmm. And, and there are times to quit and walk away from situations. Don't get me wrong, right? But for me, I think since as of several years ago, I have started going to the gym a couple times a week and training in a martial art. I love my yoga practice more than I ever did, mm-hmm. you know, because one, no one's trying to hurt me when I do it, you know, like, <laughs> like <they're, laughs> this just, is nice. Yeah. You know what I mean? But fighting. also like, but also I have, I have the interdisciplinary intelligence that I've developed through other physical modalities that I now get to experience and teach from within my asana practice, right? So I never feel stuck. I never feel stale. I never feel rote in my yoga practice because it's always being informed, not just from my yoga practice, but from other phases of my life. And I think one of the reasons it's so important for people to hear this is 
I would guess that the majority of our listeners are consistent yoga practitioners and teachers. And when you're a consistent yoga practitioner and then you become a teacher, you're likely going to have a phase of falling out of love with your practice because it changes. Yeah. You know, and so if as a teacher, you're always looking to make your practice feel like it felt in your honeymoon phase of practice, like it's just not that. Not going to be. Mm -hmm. It's not. Mm -mm. And so you have to continue to adapt to the reality of what your practice is now instead of walk away from it. There's a part of me that gets kind of scared of like, oh man, I, I hope the people that I'm teaching who are at the, you know, two to seven year mark of practicing yoga, I hope all of these people know they're going to go through different internal relationships to their practice and they got to stick through it mm. so that they have a more intelligent and informed practice, not just a, like you said, a, a disillusioned practice. And that's, I think that's a real reality. It is. Yeah, no, that's well said. I want to just add one more thing to this, which is, this is a great conversation and helpful for me. And I, I'm like you, Jules, I, in terms of how my relationship to yoga has progressed. And there was one phase where William Broad's book came out. I'm like blanking on the name right now. Science of Yoga. Right. And I was infuriated when that book came out. And I still sort of look at it as he wrote a whole book that was like supported his confirmation bias, right? He looked for specific studies. He looked for specific teachers. He looked and he found them who confirmed that yoga was this like detrimental, terrifying, horrible. He's a journalist, not a scientist, right? Right. But I'm a journalist and I don't. That's not a very smart approach. (laughs) And but then a few years later, when, you know, yoga was just really not feeling good in my body, I was kind of like, huh. Maybe it is really, maybe it is really imbalanced. <laughs> yeah, like, yeah. Maybe he was right the whole time. Holy crap. Like I'm aging and like, this doesn't feel good. And that doesn't feel good. And like, I used to do this to my body and I used to do that to my body. And I wonder if it's because of all those things. And I've kind of finally found this balance, which for me does involve strength training and, and walking a lot more than I ever used to do. And so I'm able to come back to it. And it's it's a different relationship that it used to be. And so it's actually nice to hear both of you talk about that too. You know, I want to add to that William Broad book, because when that book came out, I was so happy it came out because I was like, yeah, see, yeah, see of course. this is what I've been saying. <laughs> and then it was through my research that I was like, I don't think this is what, I don't think this is how it goes, yeah, you know? Yeah. And let me just add to that, just because there has been so much talk about you know, hip replacements and yoga and all of these things. And and I just need to say, you know, we just, there's so much we don't know. We have no idea if that yoga teacher in her, you know, forties that got the hip replacement, that's been doing yoga her whole life. We have no way of knowing that had she instead become a personal trainer instead of a yoga teacher, that she still wouldn't have needed the hip replacement. And so it's very easy to make these false conclusions based on N equals one, you know, our own personal experiences. And we don't know, we don't, you know, there's other factors in our society that are causing things like arthritis and, and back pain. And, and there's, so that's why it's important to, it's not that we're taking the, the middle ground by not taking a stance. It's just really like looking at both sides, accepting that both sides might be true and might have some value. And then just sort of figuring out 
when it applies and when it doesn't. And that's the best we can do. Mm-hmm. I think towards those ends, toward to not using your body is not a very good strategy for having a body that works well. Exactly. Right. So it's imperative that we are that we have some sort of embodied process whereby we use our body to its fullest extent and also use it to pay attention and anchor our attention to whatever's happening in the moment. Yeah. 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 You know, I I've really I did a had a podcast with Cindy Lee several episodes ago, and she has had a double hip replacement. She's like in her 60s, I think. And it was really hard for her. And I and she went through a lot of like questioning, you know, what did I do? What did I do? But she was really honest. She said, I was a dancer before I was a, a yoga person. And we used to do these things where we would jump on our backs, flat mm-hmm. on our backs on a cement floor as part of the choreography. So she's like, I don't know what I did. I, I just yep. lived, you know, I just, I was young and I lived my life. And I, that was helpful for me because it's like, I'm such a, like, I, I tend to run so anxious and I'm always trying to plan for what's going to happen. And yeah. it's like, you just you don't know. You just don't <laughs> no. know. You don't know. So anyway, that's, yeah. Thank you. Thanks so much, Jules. It was so great to talk to you. And it was so nice to finally meet you both. You too. You too. Yeah. And keep, keep doing what you're doing. It's great to have you out there. It's great to learn from you. Thanks so much, Jules. Appreciate it. Thanks again for listening. I'll put show notes at yogalandpodcast.com slash episode 160. And oh my gosh, I can't believe it's the end of the season. I hope you're enjoying your summer. I hope you get to spend time outdoors and with your friends and families and pets. As you can hear, our dogs are barking. (laughs) And until September 10th, enjoy your practice. And follow me on Instagram if you want to keep up with me. I'll be there at Andrea Ferretti. Bye. Bye.